many people inside this party that now is called Fratelli d'Italia because they separate from the party of Berlusconi in 2012. There are a percentage of people that truly had, let's say, an identity or a cultural connection with the fascist experience. Something that I can tell you that is outstanding from the political program of Georgia Meloni, her party, her coalition, is that there is actually the absence of any regard, any concern for poverty. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! Now, let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right, this is Steve with Macro and Cheese. Today's guest is none other than Yvonne Invernizzi. And Yvonne is a friend of mine. I met him at the second Modern Monetary Theory Conference at the New School in New York City and Danielle Corda and Gianluca Campo. It was so nice. I became fast friends with them immediately. Probably the nicest people I've ever met in my life. They're very kind. And Yvonne, you were amazing. Just so everybody's aware, Yvonne is the co-founder of both Reta MMT Italia and France. Yvonne is a go-getter. He has been on the show previously talking about MMT's theory of exchange rates. Check it out a few years back. So it's with great joy and honor that I bring Yvonne back on the show. Given all the changes that are happening in Italy, the world stage is saying one thing. I want to hear what the Italians have to say. So with that, I bring on my friend Yvonne. Yvonne, welcome to the show, sir. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to participate in your program. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Yvonne. So you guys had an election and you have Georgia Maloney elected, I guess she's replacing Draghi and the world is basically calling her the second coming of Mussolini. And there's a lot of other talk and it's hyperbolic at some level, but the world has been seeing a shift. You see in Brazil with Bolsonaro, Boris Johnson in the UK, and now Truss right-wing leaders popping up all over the world. And so here we are in Italy now with someone from the right coalition taking her place. So why don't you let us know a little bit about what this means? Yes. A little bit of background, first of all. So Italy is a parliamentarian republic. So the parliament is really in the center of everything in Italy. It's not like in France where people directly elect the president of the republic or in the United States where people directly elect the president. Actually, we vote for the parliament. 
and then is the parliament uh, that will uh, elect the prime minister, so to say. We call it Presidente del Consiglio. But that means that the government always needs to have the support of the parliament. In Italy, you cannot have a government that doesn't have the support of the parliament. What we did here is to vote for the parliament. And what emerged is that the right-wing coalition won with the party of Berlusconi, Giorgia Meloni, and Salvini, Lega Nord. And Giorgia Meloni, her party, has been the one with the most vote in this coalition. So it's very, very likely that she will be the prime minister. But actually, for this to be official, the parliament has to vote. And in any case, uh, she will not be straightforward. The prime minister for five years, she needs to keep having the support of the parliament for five years. If she loses this support, then another government will be voted. So basically, this, first of all, tells you that in Italy, it's harder to have very, very straightforward political shift as it may be in other countries because the parliament is always at the center. So also if uh, you have a political victory of a party which has never been at government maybe or that is pretty new, actually, there is always a system of mediation, mitigation of, uh, of dialectic. You cannot have in Italy basically somebody like Trump that, well, is elected and he doesn't need to have the support of the parliament. This for first things. Then, this being said, it's true that she has a very long political history, Giorgia Meloni. She gets inscribed in a party, which was uh, Movimento Sociale Italiano, when she was a teenager. She's involved in politics since very young age. and. She got into the parliament at 29. She became minister. And it's true that her first party was new fascist, in the sense that you had there people, it was founded by people that uh, were in the, for example, uh, Nazi puppet republic that we had in north of Italy. You know, when the Nazi invaded north of Italy, they put a puppet state there. and. Almirante, which was the leader of this movement, was working in this state. And he also had the chance to talk to Mussolini. Mussolini called him because he was basically the guy at the radio that bring communication. And just to tell you, it's true that there is an environment of neo-fascists. And when I'm saying neo-fascists, I'm not saying, generically speaking, right-wing, authoritarian, that you can have also in, in America. Fascism is actually something more specific than fascism is something that was born in Italy. It's an Italian invention, specifically Italian invention, and is more than just authoritarian and right-wing. There is also an overview of the society, and there is also the effort in order to build a cultural hegemony that include the popular, basically, social class. There is uh, basically also a social discourse within an effort to include everybody who could be anti-union, so to say. In fact, 
historically speaking, fascism was something that has as a base the middle class or the people which were working in the office. I'm talking about the 30s and 20s. And nowadays is a, a little bit evolved, but the party of Giorgio Meloni that now is called uh, Fratelli d'Italia has a pretty much a similar, so to say, uh, social base, which for the most part is not fascist. But we can say that 2 or 3% of her social base could be, to some extent, still sympathetic with the historical experience of fascism. Because, uh, well, still fascism in Italy had a lot of support until 1936. So it was not just something imposed by the establishment or by the state or the authority. There was actually a popular ground to a very big extent. And uh, yes, long story short, uh, we had this Movimento Social Italiano in which she was in that in the 19th transform in order to be more acceptable for the big public and not keep being very, very small, transforming Alianza Nazionale, and then became Partito delle Libertà when he fusioned with the party of Berlusconi. So basically, those people have been at government already all the time Berlusconi was at the government. It's not exactly a news. And to be fair, in all this time, they pretty much normalized themselves. Also, many people inside this party that now is called Fratelli d'Italia, because they separate from the party of Berlusconi in uh, 2012, there are a percentage of people that truly had, let's say, an identity or a cultural connection with the fascist experience. Not just of the old Italy, but also with the one of uh, the Repubblica Sociale Italiana, this paper state that we had until 1945. And in fact, you can see that in the symbol of Giorgia Meloni, there is a flame and MMC written in Lidl, and this is the flame of this neo-fascist party. So there is an historic connection and some flavor of sensibility in terms of a symbology to some extent. But in real terms of politics or economic policy, you don't have to think that there will be any significant change. I think actually Italy right now, from its historical past, will be mainly large extent driven by external forces, by EU, what is going on with EU and Russia, the war, United States, the economic tension that are created for example, in Germany and EU policy, there will be a consequence of the political environment in, let's say, the leading democracy in EU. So I don't think that there will be such a great shift in our internal politics. Something that I can tell you that is outstanding from the political program of Georgia Meloni, her party, her coalition, is that there is actually the absence of any regard, any concern for poverty. In the sense that the party of Georgia Meloni, she's very much against the UBI, but she's not proposing any kind of job guarantee or any program that uh, is uh, really looking to full employment. So there is not much regard for 
very low income people classes and what you can expect is that uh, some restriction on immigration maybe some family support for you know new couple in order for us baby and also this is actually a flavor that comes from fascism because also during fascism there were many social policies in order to increase the population and increase the number of births so this is something that you can see in the program sometime emerging as connection and unfortunately she's very much against the deficit spending way more than uh, Salvini which is the leader of the other right wing uh, party that we have in Italy Lega Nord but for the rest uh, the only so to say positive things that i can see in this is interesting to have a woman as possible leader of the government this is to me is still interesting and very close to her you have Crosetto which is a person which to some extent I'm sympathetic to because he was one of the few people that vote against the balanced budget in the constitution also from a right wing perspective but this is something that I respect he voted against the balanced budget this is to give you an overview and don't think that this will be a political shift as large or as it could be for example a a Marine Le Pen in France because Marine Le Pen in France would be president of the republic she on the other side will not be as powerful as a French president of the republic this is my overview so that's in the parliamentary process versus election of a premier if yeah. you will okay i understand the talk out of all the publications constantly points back to this Brothers of Italy. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us about that a little bit more in depth? Yes. Well, basically, after the Second World War, still you had many people who had feelings very close to the fascist experience. And those people in, I think, 49, they organized a party. And this is Movimento Sociale Italiano. And these nucleus of people basically keep going with very very low percentage until the 90s in the 90s they changed the day they shifted their name and they started to be more a little bit less extreme and they create alianza nazionale which started to get in the government before that they have been excluded completely for any coalition that they could go in the government until the 90s and to the point in which they fusion their party with the one of Berlusconi. And in 2012, they separate from uh, the party of Berlusconi and they create Fratelli d'Italia. Why in 2012? Because in 2012, there has been the technical government of Mario Monti, austerity. And you know, there was lots of social so to say, tension and rage in Italy. And there was so to say, maybe the space for a new political force to emerge. And they were a party of very, very little party, 3%. But the nucleus, so to say, the main people, they came from the original MSC, Movimento Sociale Italiano. People like Giorgia Meloni, but also people like La Russa, for example. And you have that, let's say, 
from 2012, they have always been at the opposition. And this is the reason why now they are so strong. Because basically, they have been the only party that has not been uh, supporting Draghi. So everybody were not satisfied with Draghi, to some extent, could have some sympathy for Fratelli d'Italia. It was the only party of the opposition. And at the end, it paid off. This is one of the reasons. So I think that now they have 27% of the vote. Let's say 3% of this 27% is connected with people which have some sympathy to the fascist experience. The rest is actually standard right-wing people, you know, not that right-wing. And this is basically the, the history of Fratelli Italia. And now the bond with the fascism is more, you know, sentimental for some of them than real, because nobody wants to overthrow the Republic or this kind of thing. But it's true that you have now in Fratelli Italia people where, uh, for example, you have Rauti, uh, Isabella Rauti, which is the daughter of an ex MP of MSC, which were connected with fascist terrorism, black terrorism. That, by the way, that terrorism in the 70s was financed by the Americans. And this is an historical truth. Also, Movimento Sociale Italiano has been financed. And this is also something which is an historical truth. Finance from the U.S. in an anti-communist logic, basically. It probably will come as no surprise to you that many of the big oligarchs in the United States also helped bankroll Nazi Germany. So it's not like it's a far reach for us to yeah. bankroll any terrorist outfit throughout the world. We engage in proxy wars constantly, and we're engaged in a proxy war right now with Ukraine and Russia. Mm. I do have a question for you though, before we get into economics, there is a huge rift. And I know that everybody has different beliefs, but as a leftist, I always stand for people and I want them to have freedom no matter what. I want them to be able to express themselves and live their truth without government telling them that who they are is invalid, what they want is invalid. And one of the things I had taken special note of is Maloney previously had spoken to the Vox party, which is Spain's far right wing party. And I believe her quotes, and you don't necessarily have to weigh in on this, but this is terrifying to a lot of leftists and this demonization of quote unquote woke politics. The way I define woke politics is I didn't know these people were oppressed. Now I do know they're oppressed and now I'm trying to help them lead their best life and not be squashed by people's bigotry. The opposite to that is what she said to the Vox party in Spain. She says yes to the natural family, no to the LGBT lobby, yes to sexual identity, no to gender ideology, no to Islamist violence, yes to secure borders, no to mass migration, no to big international finance, no to bureaucrats of Brussels. What do you take from that? Because this bureaucrats of Brussels and no to big international finance. Those two things I'm on board with, but the rest of it is pretty terrible, in my opinion. I just am curious, what exactly makes up the social political space in Italy that she's speaking to? What is that divide like in Italy? Why is she concerning herself with that? Is there a major social war going on in Italy? 
Yeah, well, to be fair, personally speaking, uh, I don't support Meloni and I don't support uh, her coalition. This being said, to be fair, me myself, I'm not as preoccupied uh, as maybe the foreign press is because I see her being very much normalized and I don't see her truly making any authoritarian shift or being able to, but neither willing to. Because when you get actually to the government and when you get big number at the election, and this is true both for right wing and left wing, generally speaking, you always have the tendency to move to the center, to not be very radicalized. You can say the same, for example, in Spain with Nidos Podemos. So basically, she's not anti-EU. She doesn't have any plan or she doesn't explicitly say anything about leaving the EU. She doesn't explicitly say anything about leaving the Eurozone. On the contrary, she says, we stay in EU, we stay in the Eurozone, and we stay in the NATO. So basically, the true framework, political international framework, doesn't change. And within this framework, in terms of policy, you don't have a normal space. This being said, uh, what are in her program the things that could be, so to say, anti-LGBT? For example, the fact that she said that she wants to provide help to new married couples that are looking for a first ownership or first house. So implicitly, those are heterosexual couples. Or that she will provide support to new couple or new married couple that uh, want to have a baby, but also her. Implicitly, since we don't have homosexual marriage in Italy, she's talking about heterosexual couple. But I don't see her uh, truly making steps in order to limit uh, the freedom of somebody. For example, they tend to be against abortion. Fine. What are they suggesting? They are suggesting to create basically a fund of money, a finance mechanism in order to provide, to help the women who want to make an abortion to keep the baby. So basically, the idea is to tell them, look, we are going to help you financially if you want to keep the baby. But you see, they never said that they are going to forbid an abortion. Or another thing is that there has been a law suggestion some time ago, which were basically in a region of Italy, Molise, if I'm not wrong, which were basically imposing to buried dead fetus. So basically, it was something, you know, in an anti-abortion logic, but they don't get to the point in which they actually suggest to making abortion illegal. And so at the end of the day, I don't think that in a parliamentary republic, in terms of civil rights, you can make so reactionary shift so quickly. Maybe I'm wrong, but... <laughs> well, it seems like there's some built-in buffers to make sure that that kind of thing does yeah. not happen, which is good if you're looking to keep things as they are, and it can be bad if you're looking to make change. Yeah. I guess that brings us to economics. Yeah. I've spoken to several Italian MMTers over the course of the last couple of years. 
Warren Mosler has been instrumental in a lot of the discussions from the MMT community within Italy. However, as you stated, Ms. Maloney is not pro-deficit spending. And as a result of that, we as MMTers understand that there's some very serious consequences that come from that. Tell me a little bit about what you envision the economic space looking like in Italy, given what it was like under Draghi and his government and the new coalition government. Yes, well, first of all, what I'm going to say is very much personal in the sense that this is my own opinion and it's very likely that other people in MMT France or Rete MMT Italy have different opinions. So take it as a very much personal opinion. So basically, now in this historical moment, the Italian economic policy is very much dependent on EU. EU does constrain the policy space and the policy to core. Why? Because we don't have our own currency. Currency is euro currency at the level of eurozone, and this has enormous policy implication. So if the European governments is in a moment in which they want to push on the austerity, they will do basically everything in order to oblige you to get austerity. And you saw it with Greece. They elected a pretty left-wing government. They voted against the austerity, and then they obliged them to do even more austerity than what they refused to do. So incredible. And the same thing is for Italy, pretty much. So what's the economic policy moment in EU? Now, in EU with the COVID-19, there has been the cancellation, the suspension of the Maastricht Treaty, so of the 3% deficit pill limitation. So basically, in a couple of days, in EU, austerity was not the priority anymore. The ECB started to back the debt of the government. Uh, There has not been any interest rate spread issue because uh, they understood that uh, imposing austerity in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic would have been very, very dangerous for the European Union project to cure. Because uh, I think that if they would have imposed austerity to Italy, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, Italy would have left the Union to court. And it was very, very clear because one day the ECB, it was the days in which in Bergamo there has been so many deaths that the army were taking all the corpses and carrying them to the cemetery and there were the queue of military trucks full of deaf people. And in this moment, in those days, there has been the Lagarde, so the president, the government, the head of the European Central Bank, that said, well, it's not our problem. Our mandate is about price stability. We don't have anything to do with pandemics. And this has been very, very badly received in Italy by everybody, also by right and neocon and neoliberal people. It was something just unacceptable. So after two days, they completely shifted the discourse and she, Lagarde has said sorry. And basically, the European governments 
decide to suspend the 3% deficit limit. I think that it will be very, very unlikely that posterity will come back in, let's say, within a very, very brief period of time. Why? Because the war after the COVID-19 in Ukraine has been a pressure, create a political pressure in order to not impose austerity again. Once, because there are some countries which are making crazy investment in defense, first of all, France. And the other reason is that Germany itself, which is basically the core of the European uh, governance dynamics, basically is under tension because it's very much dependent on Russian gas, on Russia. And this has been so since the times in which East Germany was uh, under the, let's say, influence of the Soviet Union. They really have an infrastructure, gas infrastructure, that rely heavily on gas. So basically, I think that the German establishment, I mean, I will be surprised to see that the German establishment in such a scenario will be willing to impose austerity because I think it could create uh, tension, but tension within their democracy, not elsewhere, within their country. From this point of view, for example, Italy and France are way less dependent on the Russian gas than Germany. They are still dependent, but not to the same extent. So basically, I think that it's very unlikely that in the short term we will see austerity again, or very hard austerity, in the EU. And the paradox is that you have the worst things ever, like pandemic, war, which actually are preventing a bad economic policy to occur, which is austerity. So it's very cynic uh, to recognize that because, let's say, bad policy should be avoided for other reasons. But that's what I see. And there are other events, other things that are pushing in the same direction. For example, this summer has been in Italy very, very dry. It was like never been so dry. The agriculture was in crisis and the environment were in crisis and everybody could see that. And also this is something that is calling for state investment, for state spending. So those are all things which are actually... I think educating to some extent the public opinion and the establishment to the fact that uh, the state needs to spend in order to maintain and reproduce the economic and social structure. And my hope is that years after years, practice of not austerity and uh, deficit spending and the fact that there are results because despite the pandemic, and everything, the economy is not going bad, actually. It's going pretty good. So I hope that we recognize and see that and that the austerity will not come back as badly as this has been in like 2012, 2013, and 14. So yes, this is a little bit uh, as I see the economic policy scenario. You are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon, 
Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube, and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, Rockfin, and Instagram. It's interesting in the United States, we still are living from the 70s with Volcker and Friedman. <laughs> They're cranking interest rates through the roof, and that's having a major worldwide impact on finance, or I should say the state of the economy around the world, given the oversized footprint of the U.S. and the lack of understanding most governments have in terms of their fiscal ability to handle and offset things that happen from externalities. So given the United States pushing for raising interest rates significantly, which Warren Mosler says is a core cause of inflation, and then also the United States is waging this proxy war with Ukraine and Russia, I am curious as to what the impacts of the United States actions have been on Italy. Well, uh, I think that uh, the impact uh, of the United States action has been on all the EU, the sense that, first of all, in the term of on interest rate, the translation is on exchange rate. But I don't think still the interest rate has such a big role in, in terms of real economic variable. The impact of the, the United States has been, I think, mainly with the, so to say, pushing or creation of the scenario that uh, led to the war in Ukraine. Because, of course, the war in Ukraine is not disconnected with the choice that NATO and EU did in the last 20 years. So I see this stress on the real nature of the EU, which is austerity and neoliberalism, that comes from outside, pandemic and war, are connected with the US to the extent that this war is connected to the US. So yeah, I see this way, not in terms of interest rate, to be fair. I don't see this as that central. It would be interesting also to see how the situation with China evolves in the sense that also attention between China and the U.S. is a core for investment in defense. And investment in defense are in contradiction with austerity. So I'm not saying that is a good thing, but still, it's still a push in terms of spending in, in that area. Then let's see what happened in Ukraine, because uh, also all the call in order to basically include Ukraine into the West that uh, are made, not just by the US, but also by European country, will translate uh, if uh, the war stops and there is all Ukraine or part of Ukraine that, let's say, is not taken by Russia, it's very likely that basically there will be some kind of martial plan or financial plan in order to impose an influence on Ukraine. And also this is pending, to be fair. And I don't know if it's still there, but for example, the Italian 
industrial association, main industrial association. Now they had, until a few times ago, they made an official headquarter in Kiev, in Kiev, in order to be connected with all the spending that the West is likely to do in Ukraine in order to impose some economic hegemony. Then let's see, let's see. Let's see how it goes, because those historical dynamics like war are not things that you can actually forecast, in the sense that we cannot say how it will end up, and uh, it's something that creates some instability from a political standpoint. The point is that when you have some level of political instability, or in the sense that you are in a situation in which the establishment cannot do whatever it wants without uh, taking into account the cost, because there are tensions, there are imbalances, because you don't have exactly a straightforward pyramid structure where who is at the top can control everything, because there are actually many forces that are in contradiction one another. In this situation, I think that uh, policy that repress people from an economic standpoint cannot be pushed too hard. And uh, this prevents EU to create an extra pressure, as it the same political pressure that created and social tension that created some years ago with austerity. So basically, in order to cope with those external pressure, they are obliged to not reproduce austerity and neoliberalism to the same extent, because it will be too much for the social tissue. I think to keep it will be a bit, will fragilize the social economic structure and create too much instability, which they don't want. I see basically the scenario being like this, and the U.S. have a role in this because the conflict with Russia is not something that is alien or is completely disconnected with the U.S. at all. So as we look at the changing world, climate crisis is a big deal. Yeah. Within my work, which was usually talking to folks like yourself, the vast majority have told me that we have a very massive divide between the global north and the global south in terms of not only energy extraction, but also the ability to produce their own goods and services because they've been picked apart by the global north to satisfy the global north's energy needs and production needs. What is Italy's position in fighting climate crisis? Does it see it as a problem? Does it not recognize it? And how do you foresee the Maloney government addressing climate crisis? Yeah, well... uh... The environmental sensibility in general, so the environmental speech, the greenwash uh, dynamic has actually touched pretty much all uh, the political actor that you have in Italy. So you can see an environmental sensibility in all uh, political program of the parties. Somewhere you will find that there's some phrases, some points which, which are connected with the environment. So let's say in terms of generic sensibility, I think that a change has been made since, I don't know, the 70s. Okay? 
where actually pretty much nobody was caring about environment, just very much minority, which were very much environmental friendly. This being said, you can do with a state policy as much as you can spend. There is a connection between those two things, between the ability of spending and the ability of intervening. And I think that Italy has uh, a pretty limited freedom in this scenario. But it's true that you have an interconnection between energy dependency issue and uh, the environmental friendly policy or sensibility in the term, in the sense that something that is underlined very much by the situation with Russia and Ukraine is uh, the importance of uh, not being energy dependent or too much energy dependent. So this understanding has been here actually in Italy also before that, but now is even stronger. So the importance of having houses built up in order to not consume too much in terms of energy, the importance of adding cars that are less and less demanding in terms of fuel cost. Well, this is something that I see is recognized and there are policies also this moment, those last year already, that took this direction. And I don't see this government to make a shift on that. And it's not just straightforward environmental sensibility, but there is also a very strong connection with the recognition of the importance of the energy dependency issue. So now in Italy, the cost of energy increased a lot, especially for productive firms that use a lot of energy. They really saw the cost of energy increasing two, three, four times, depending on the mix of energy that they are using, of course. So I see investment in that area in the area of energy saving, let's say. And of course, indirectly, this translates also on CO2 emission and of fossil fuel dependency. Then again, there is a policy of the EU that said that it's forbidden to produce um, basically combustion uh, means of transport, combustion car, car that uses uh, gasoline, after 2035. So basically, they made this strong statement. And so this, of course, had a huge impact on the industry, the car industry, because uh, still uh, United Europe is close to have half billion people. Is uh, something about 400 million people. Now, okay, the UK left, but still, if you take the EU, it's a huge market. Yes. <laughs> It's definitely a huge market, I guess. You know, so as a market, then it depends from moment to moment, but it's close to be also bigger than the US. I think that, yes, it's very likely that still, also with a right-wing uh, environment and establishment, there will be improvement in those areas. Again, maybe partially for the wrong reason, but still. <laughs> Accidentally. Broke yeah. clock right twice a day kind of thing. <laughs> With the Eurozone being such a massive market, the U.S. proxy war has tried to say, we'll come help you. And I've seen it hurting Germany. 
what does the long-term outlook for the EU look like to you? I know that from an MMT perspective, many, including Bill Mitchell, see it as a neoliberal project that needs to be done away with. But dropping the deficit issues and providing that policy space, have you seen the necessary changes to make this long-term successful? Or do you feel like the EU presents more problems and solutions? Oh, I think EU is not in danger in the sense that I see the establishment of EU being smart enough, mature enough to make uh, the necessary shift in order to preserve the project. So it's not as rigid as you may think and as fragile because of rigidity as we may think in the past, but is by design anti-democratic and regressive reactionary project in the sense that EU is neocon, neoliberal in nature. There's nothing progressive pretty much in EU. There's not just an economic issue. There's a political and democratic issue in the sense that EU is not a democratic institution. What I mean is that uh, truly the decisions are not made in the parliament. The parliament of the EU is a theater. doesn't have a role. It says that uh, if the EU parliament is, for some reason, not uh, willing to vote for a law that uh, the European Commission presented, the European Commission can have another way to make it approval without uh, the parliament. So the EU parliament basically is a theater, and the true center of power is something that is called Eurogroup. The point is that Eurogroup is not an official institution. It's something informal. So it's basically like if you have a republic with all the institutions, but then the decisions are made at the bar between a group of people, which are the head of state, and in which uh, the power and weight of one person is connected with the weight of his country is not something which is uh, paritetic or which is formalized, is very much arbitrary. And it led to the fact that the central and more stronger country are the ones which are making the policy for everybody. So we can see you as an extension of the central democracy, an extension of the German democracy and to some extent the French. And then the more you are Peripheric, the less actually you count. So, yes, to some extent, that's why you can say that Greece, to some extent, became a colony of Germany because the policies that, that have been made in Greece are actually more dependent, more reliant on the German politics than on the Greek, at least in terms of economic policy. And so I see it very much as uh, something regressive. I'm very much against it. But I don't see it going away soon at all. And uh, the only reason why there will be some progress to some extent, or there will be no regression, social regression too much in EU, is not because of EU itself, it's because of external factors that are making pressure on the EU. So yes, that's very, very, very sad. Very dark scenario. Well, 
It used to be we gave up our monetary sovereignty. Now it sounds like in many ways you've given up control of your own country at some level. That's got to be a pretty depressing thought. Yeah, yeah. Well, anyway, you always are influenced by what happened out of your country. So it's not that it's fully new in the sense that also before the war, before the pressure, the constraint of the European Union, still we had, of course, constraint from more generic West area, the US, the NATO, and nobody is truly completely 100% free and autonomous for what you have outside. But yes, the point is that here we have a political and monetary constraint. So basically, EU is uh, something that repress, really neutralize, if you wish, the democratic institution in the national space. And I think that it's one of the reasons why it has been made is really to shift, you know, the balance of power within the EU. Balance of power also be between classes and between interest. With the EU, basically, everything became more right-wing or more neocon, neoliberal. They have been very successful in creating a pro-EU culture, identity. Many people really identify themselves as European and progressive, for example, which is a complete contradiction. <laughs> it's a complete contradiction in the sense that uh, EU in nature is not economic and socially progressive. Maybe it's progressive in terms of social rights. I agree with that, but it's this kind of progressive they sell uh, economic right, economic social policy with uh, some freedom, with uh, woke policy. And the left in Italy, actually, the left is identified just with civil rights and not anymore in any extent with economic right or economic point issue. Basically, they change the scenario. Basically, you have two right-wing or a battle between right-wing parties. And actually, the economic policy standard is right-wing. There's no anymore true discussion. And basically, the DU is something that has, is pushing for that and is pushing or impose an agenda that is neocon in nature. The only things in which basically is I'm seeing, as I told you, is that I live in the richest part of Italy. I live now in Monza, which is very close by Milan. And uh, this is a part, let's say, is still a part which is very much core in the EU. And what I see is that maybe EU is creating a polarization between the periphery and the core, if you wish. Because it's basically a way for the core to exploit the periphery even more. And I'm in a situation in which uh, I'm a little bit in the middle. So from a democratic standpoint, it's very bad. From an economic standpoint, it's still bad, but maybe not as bad as is it for other parts of my country of, or of the EU. For example, it's not as bad as it's for some region in Spain or Portugal, where they basically get depopulated. <laughs> wow. They get depopulated to the point in which you have some infrastructure that are not any more sustainable. This is not the case where I live. The point is that some years ago, I would think that the situation would have become worse. 
than what it is now. Actually, my forecast has been different than what I see because I didn't expect EU to cancel 3% deficit limit. I didn't expect all this deficit spending coming. And also all this expansionary policy in the real estate in order to create less energy dependence building and urban structure. So yeah, history is actually something that will always surprise us. And uh, to be fair, I learned in those last year that uh, everything can happen still and the, the historical direction and path can actually shift pretty fast, way faster than what we expect. Thank you so much for this, Ivan. First of all, we can't wait this long between talks. We've got to get together <laughs> sooner than this. Yeah. I love this talk. But second of all, tell us more about what kind of work we can find from you and where we can find more of your existing stuff. Yeah, so of course you can find, well, the interview that I've been making for Macro and Cheese in the past, that I think that there's something very interesting in them. Then I wrote uh, many, several articles for RetMMT Italia in Italian, but some are translated in English and not just mine, also of my comrade. And then I wrote an uh, article in French with Robert, my basically partner in crime for MMT France, some of which has been translated in English. And I also wrote actually a dissertation, which basically proposed a model for industrial policy design and implementation, which include MMT and is in English. So you can find that online on MMT French website. Then you can find some video of mine here and there on YouTube. But MMT France and Red MMT Italia are the primary source if you want to read something. Absolutely. Yvonne, please tell all of our friends, Gianluca, Daniela, that I said hello and that I missed them too. And Hopefully I can talk to them at some point in the future. Yeah, I will tell them. I was talking with Gianluca just a few hours ago, and uh, for sure I will tell them uh, that you say hi. And thank you again for having me here. It has been a very big pleasure. Something that it warmed my heart to exchange with you and to know that also very far away there are people which are fighting for the cause and sometimes being activist, being MMTers is hard. Knowing that still there are other people who are fighting like you is something that provides you hope. Yes. You're a wonderful man. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much for the time. And with that, my friends, this is Steve Grumbine with my guest, Ivan Invernizzi, and this is Macro and Cheese, and we are out of here. Macro and Cheese is produced by Andy Kennedy. Descriptive writing by Virginia Cox and promotional artwork by Andy Kennedy. Macro and Cheese is publicly funded by our Real Progressive Patreon account. If you would like to donate to Macro and Cheese, please visit patreon.com slash real progressives. I want the truth!